Welcome to Artelligence, the podcast of art news, art in America, and Art Market Monitor. I'm Marion Maneker, and we're going to explore the mysteries of the global art world. In this episode of the Artelligence podcast, we hear from artist Sharon Hayes, who is currently exhibiting her work, My Little Corner of the World, Anyone Would Love You, at the Philadelphia Museum of Art as part of its New Grit Art in Philly Now show. Hayes is connected to Philadelphia by virtue of her professorship at the University of Pennsylvania. Her work uses photography, film, video, sound, performance, and text to interrogate the intersection between the personal and the collective. Her work has been shown at the Whitney Biennial, Documenta, and the Venice Biennale. She's interviewed by artist James Alistair Sprang, whose own work combines elements of photography, sound, installation, and poetry. He tells stories that draw from Black radical and experimental traditions. He has shown work or performed at The Kitchen, The Brooklyn Museum, Storm King Art Center, The Public Theater, Barishnikov Art Center, The Apollo Theater, and many other institutions. That's enough about their biographies. Let's listen to Sharon and James. So this is a text piece that Every Ocean Hughes wrote in 2006 uh, called Love, and it's an extract from a longer text. Love is a strategy, medium, sight, and scene. Love is an act. Love is not a quantifiable element able to be parsed between politics and poetics, for it constantly transforms the definition of those very terms. Before I speak economy and resistance, I must be explicit. Queer love. Queer love exemplifies itself by its lack of singular object relations and an insistence on unstable and mutable boundaries. My insistence on queer love is because the unspoken alternative would be heteronormative love. Distinguishing this discourse of love as one that implicitly speaks queer love, we do not take for granted modes of reproduction, exchange values, or teleological engagements. We allow simultaneous investments, contradiction, excess, relief, and excess. The theater of queer love employs politics, poetics, and aesthetics in equal measure. Queering love transforms the vocabulary with which we address our object, and the ensuing acts need not be translated. The materiality of this argument is in its very terms. Queer love is not economical, and that is political. Love as a medium is part of an economy of resistance, ecstatic resistance, I would say, provoking questions of memory and tactics. What does love want? Is it always discursive or sometimes outside of rational economies of getting and giving? Sharon, how are you doing today? (laughs) I'm good. I'm good. Great. It's great to have you. You poured me a glass of Prosecco and I'm doing really well. (laughs) (laughs) Indeed. Indeed. That's what we do here. All right. So my first question for the evening is, uh, when did you declare yourself an artist? How old were you and where were you? Uh, So probably to answer the question, I have to kind of move through two moments. Um, So one was uh, I was 20, 21 uh, in a small liberal arts college in Maine. 
And I had happened upon a class that was being taught by a visiting performance artist from New York. And um, it was one of those moments that, um, that I knew, you know, that people have, but you can't anticipate, where your life just suddenly kind of takes a turn. Um, I had a whole set of plans in front of me, and I sort of encountered this person and, and the field of performance and decided to take a left turn and move to New York. Um, so in the middle of my studies, I moved to New York, became a rehearsal assistant for him, was immersed really immediately and, and really sort of fantastically and ecstatically in the downtown dance theater and performance scene in, in New York. Um, and that was a really kind of critical moment in that scene. Um, and it was a transformational experience. And I uh, ended up finishing college, but then moving back to New York and stayed there and worked for about um, maybe five to eight years. I started making my own work and I called myself an artist. Pretty much I, I probably would have answered if someone had asked me, what do you do? I would have said, I do performance. Mm -hmm. So in some ways, the operative term at that moment was performance art. And I was working in a theatrically based context for an audience that came, sat, watched, bought a ticket, you know, and then got up at the end of the performance and left the space. Um, and in the late 90s, um, I felt like I became aware of a kind of ceiling in that way of making. And it was a little bit watching um, artists sort of eight, nine, ten years older than I was, and a little bit also my own process that what started to be available was to do another show or another show or another show, but the fundamental conditions of the form didn't necessarily change. Um, and, and the sort of economies of it weren't necessarily sustainable. So I kind of got to this point where I felt like I needed, um, I wanted a way to do what I did in a, a future sense, like to be able to do it into the future, mm -hmm. to not hit a ceiling and to do it in a sustainable way. And so that was this other sort of moment of, of taking a little pivot via the, the ISP program at the Whitney, but, but it was already sort of in, in progress. And um, that moment of kind of moving out of a theatrically-based way of working, at the time I didn't know that I was necessarily moving towards something specific, um, but that I was moving out of a certain context and, and ended up... Um, sort of immersed in a maybe what I could call exhibition practice and having to grapple with then working with performance off the stage and letting that letting that really transform my practice. And that, I guess, is the moment where I became an artist in a kind of capital A sense. So my next question would be, who is your work for? So I think in the core of the work and the kind of heart of the work, it's a conversation... Um, really centrally with queer practice in a really in a really big and expansive way, and I don't want to limit that to queer art or to queer artists or to queer people even, but to kind of the histories, genealogies, futurities of queer practice. I think in some ways, then my audience is other people sort of out there. Um, you know, in all forms of kind of queer practice. That's like a central core heart heart audience. Um, 
but but actually, uh, I think from the theatrical work, the idea of an audience is really present in my work always. And that audience, you never quite know who is going to show up. And it's also really shaped by context. It's like if I'm invited to do a work in a particular space, that space has an existing audience or usually audiences or an existing public or usually publics, like many, not just one. And I think that I, I can't ignore those bodies. Um, I can't turn away from them. And that becomes really, really present when I'm asked or invited, for instance, to show work outside of the U.S. or outside of the context of English, outside of the lingu linguistic context of English, where then the question of who is this work for has to become really real. Like, who is this work for? Who can understand this work? Who can receive it? Who, what do I have to offer to uh, those publics in order to kind of give them a, a, a pathway to the work. Like, so, you know, translation and translation, not just on the level of language itself, but also um, the context that I'm kind of coming from and some of the, the contextual grounds that the work is moving off of. Um, I'm thinking obviously about the love addresses, uh, which you've kind of mentioned and it'd be nice if you could contextualize that a little bit and then also talk about the process of titling that work great I I, <laughs> I love titles and I hate titles because it's something where you it's such a space where you can um, um, sort of hold something that is maybe not entirely clear in the work itself and it's also very very often the encounter or maybe the only encounter someone might have with the work. They may not even get to the sort of meat of the matter, but they have the title. So it's a place where you can kind of do a lot of work. And the love addresses, um, I guess in that series of works, there's three pieces. The They're, they're long titles. And sometimes, because uh, of perhaps what I just said, that I love titles and it's a place that you can work, sometimes the titles can be a little long. So the first love address that I made is called Everything Else Has Failed, Don't You Think It's Time for Love? And um, that is actually, uh, was a title that I found um, in the midst of, a, of an earlier project. Um, I was doing a lot of research and looking at old images of protest signs. And there was a um, an image of a protest that took place in the late 60s in Berkeley. Um, and someone, there was a whole sea of people and in the foreground of the image, someone was sitting on the ground, everybody was sitting on the ground and this one person had a, a placard that was leaning against their knees and it said, everything else has failed, don't you think it's time for love? And it's one of the things I love about archives is you can find these things that, like the slogan that circulated in mass media at that same time was make love not war. Um, and in some ways, maybe the sentiments are similar, but everything else has failed. Don't you think it's time for love for me holds so much sort of complexity to it? Um, because it's sad also, it's like, it's sad and there's a kind of defeat to it. Uh, and that love is not posited as all powerful, but as possible, <laughs> like maybe this will help. Um, and I appreciated its doubt. I appreciated the doubt. So that one I found. Um, as Actually, all of the titles in the Love Address series are, are citational. So the next one is, I march in the parade of freedom, but as long as I love you, I'm not free. 
And that's, um, that's something I came across when I was in the space of like pouring through love letters and, um, which I was reading all of these sort of love letters from different sort of historical moments, but many around this sort of, uh, context of war. And that is actually from a Bob Dylan song. Embarrassingly, I don't even know the title of the song. I guess I didn't care, (laughs) but, um, I, I appreciated that idea of being like unfree by love, like that love, again, like we have some reductive idea, idea that love heals everything, but actually we all also know that love creates a ton of pain in our lives. And also, you know, yeah, like, like some, some pretty serious, um, ruts, you know, we can get pretty rutted (laughs) through love and by love and with love. So I liked this idea of being, um, held by love, being kind of frozen by love, being, um, seized, seized by it. And then the last one, which was, a uh, the last in that series is called, um, revolutionary love. I am your worst fear. I am your best fantasy. And that, that one was also from a kind of moment, uh, from a, a set of protest signs, two different ones brought together, but Um, One was from uh, this kind of peak of the gay liberation movement. So like 71, New York City, Christopher Street Liberation Day Parade, and an activist who was part of this group called the Gay Liberation Front had, um, her name is Donna Gottschuk. She was uh, posed in a picture with a a placard kind of hanging off of her neck that said, I am your worst fear, I am your best fantasy. And for me, also, I, I think there was something, if I think about the way, at least in the, uh, to, you know, around 2008 when I was making that work, I was thinking a lot about how, um, I was thinking a lot about love as a, as a strategy and love as a tactic. Uh, and so as, as you say, like, I think you're, it's really apt to, to say that love is not only a theme in my work, but a kind of galvanizing of a set of tactics. And if I think about how gay liberationists used love as a political tool, that idea of like working with both fear and desire, like the ways in which uh, queers or liber- you know, gay liberationists were feared and desired, and that that was part of this kind of tension of queerness in pub- publicity, queerness in a kind of... Um, as it, as it started to agitate against heteronormative kind of conditions, that, that the, it wasn't one thing that was going on, it was many things going on, you know, which is certainly true of, I think, a lot of the ways in which bodies circulate through space, black bodies, brown bodies, queer bodies, like through these, like many things are going on in terms of this, tension between hypervisibility and invisibility. That's really nice. And I was going to ask you, I'm going to preface with this so that you understand the kind of the history of, if you will, of this question. So I was going to ask, what does the average day in the studio look like for those that are less familiar with your work? And I was also going to ask, what is it like to work with an archive, to work with material in which you're supposed to be represented, but obviously are never fully represented. Um, 
which which necessitates and positions you to kind of work from a place of intuition. Um, so I'm going to bring those ideas together. And the reduction of those two questions for me is, how do you think of the body as an archive? Very often the archive will become the studio because I'll just, you know, pour myself into, into an archive. But that's not to say that the um, archive itself is full of pleasure. Uh, and what I enjoy about being in an archive is probably being in an archive as an artist, like being in an, in an archive um, without an agenda and in a way that I can uh, sort of be as curious about its its gaps and the things that are missing as I can about the things that are there. Um, your last question about the body as an archive is so, it's such a great and super rich question. And it would be really nice actually to like kind of linger on it and talk for a long time about it because I think you, you and I have talked a lot because we've, um, because we've sort of circulated a lot in uh, spaces where we're thinking about performance and the presumption, you know, that kind of baseline presumption in performance about the body is so um, immediately false and failed um, that, that the ways in which a given body is um, sort of uh, subjected to these internal and external uh, sort of impressions or um, it obviously is really uh, different <laughs> and and um, there is no singular you know the body there is no sense of not everybody's body uh, is afforded the same safety the same freedom the same uh, um, access you know points of access in, in any of our either public or private uh, spaces and pathways. I think I got a little off of the body as an archive. It's a really, it's a, I mean, maybe what I can also say about the body as an archive, it's, it's a really great and thick and juicy question that I think um, would be really fun to talk more about um, because it does seem to be that in your question is both the ways in which our bodies are mm, like um, house an aggregate of histories yeah yeah and that those um, what's really interesting about your question also is that the ways in which that happens to our bodies isn't necessarily always recognizable by you know intelligible to us through our minds like it's something that often we actually hit upon we understand it through some other kind of like quite physical experience of being um you know <laughs> assaulted coerced confronted um spat upon uh you know uh violated actually which I think is a beautiful thing to tease out because I think that is somewhat enacted in your work, right? Where you're taken to an archive. Sometimes you're led to an archive. Sometimes you arrive to an archive. 
and in the working through in the as you said locating the gaps there is an enacting of your intuition um that that leads to to a resolve in a in a beautiful way and in a way that is all about the strategies of queer love i think it is something about trying to find points of access to these um these aggregate histories that kind of circulate in our in our lived and embodied lives um and you know sometimes you can find little sort of evidences of them and understand something uh that wasn't otherwise clear okay one other thing that i find really interesting about <laughs> archives is um and i wonder how this relates then to the body more properly but one of the th- other things I find interesting about archives is this idea of um, the minor, you know, that, that very often cultural objects, political objects, um, economic objects even maybe recirculate on their own uh, because they have a certain value, you know, something that I could say... Um, uh, sort of brings them forward to bear again and again and again over over you know many decades or something. It recirculates, comes to publicity again, and then the archive often what one can find in the archive are also all of these sort of objects, um, documents, shards, fragments that don't reappear, mm. and those have been sort of for me a really interesting. Uh, sort of set of things to follow, the, f- the things that don't reappear, and that we can go there and see them, but when they're taken out of the circulation of publicity or public conversation, we're missing something. Yeah, they become like a latent speech act, almost. Right. right. I feel as though I've interrupted no, you. No, 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 you're absolutely right. And, and so th- this piece that's at the PMA, uh, actually, in my little corner of the world, anyone would love you, in a show called New Grit Art in Philly Now, um, the the body of material that these 13 readers um, from Philadelphia, readers, performers from Philadelphia, uh, that they speak out loud in 2016, the, the body of material is from um, fragments pulled out of archives in the U.S. and U.K. The work is a five-channel video piece, and the content of the work... Um, the, the sort of meat of the work. Newsletters, small-run magazines, lesbian, lesbian feminist, what I might call sort of proto-trans. The, the, the term trans was not used to um, sort of self-describe those newsletters, but certainly they were um, newsletters of and from a community of, of gender nonconformists. Um, and so... Uh, that's the sort of body of material that gets readdressed, I could say, or, or respoken, really, to be honest, um, respoken in 2016 by a collection of readers, performers who I um, engaged in Philadelphia. The thing that became so significant, if I had been in New York making that work, I think I would have, you know, kind of used my phone and called up friends and people I knew and performers I knew and in because I was landing in a city, I didn't know anybody. I had to actually um, kind of put out a call. And 
for me, often in my work, the ways that I work with people, the means, the tactics, I guess, the strategies I use to invite somebody into the work are different with each piece. And they are so meaningful. They end up making so much meaning in a work. So in this case, um, to be able to put out a call saying, okay, I'm looking for queer, genderqueer, gender nonconforming, non-binary, trans, trans men, trans women, lesbians, dykes, who are interested in being in this project, um, meant that I could also sort of um, engage a whole group of strangers. And, and that um, really opened up the work, I think, in this kind of incredible way. And so what ends up happening is essentially like a kind of a, a constellation of, of queer folk from 2016 read this material from 1955 to 1977. Wow. I forgot to say that part. Yeah. Wow. And, um, and for me, there's so many points of, um, dialogue and communication. Like it, maybe it's even too much to say continuity. It's not really about like this, you know, it's not really about like that the present moment is the same as the past in any way, mm -hmm. but that there's so much about, uh, how we kind of work collectively um, as queer people in this moment that I think um, it is really uh, sort of in dialogue with and, and, and needs a dialogue with that moment from 1955 and 1977. And I guess um, maybe what I can say is that... Uh, so. This will. This might be something you want to kind of pull back earlier, but I'll just start it. Mm -hmm. Start it from this point. Um, so, ni 1955 to Stonewall essentially is very often kind of called um, in the U.S. and part and sort of parts of uh, many other places um, outside of the U.S. So. Um, 1955 uh, to Stonewall, um, there were a, a, a circulating set of, of political collectives, social collectives that organized and generally might have been called sort of homophile movement, the homophile movement. Um, try, let me try one more time. Uh, okay, so... Um, so in sort of queer genealogies, 1955 to Stonewall, um, really that sort of setting or terrain was um, populated by a whole host of groups and um, collectives who organized under what has generally been called the kind of homophile movement. Um, when I came out in the early 90s and started going to like the Dyke March and and I don't even know how this happened because that's sort of sometimes how um, misrecognitions are transmitted. I don't know who told me, but I generally absorbed the understanding that that period of political activity, that those activists were sort of uh, not yet ready to be radical, like absorbed this idea that Stonewall marks the kind of um, threshold of radicality, that the homophile movement was sort of passive wanted assimilation and the um stonewall represents a kind of break into radicality 
And I think one of the things that once I sort of poured through these newsletters and small run magazines that I had never fully understood was the incredible radical work of wrenching the narrative of queer uh, and trans lives out of the regime of psychiatry and self-narrating. So, so what I started to understand was this whole set of really radical practices to put words to life experience and to gather words. Um, and so for me, what's really impactful about that material is that it's um, political, uh, like, for me, what's really amazing about that material is that you see people becoming themselves through writing and reading, that they're recognizing themselves in the words of someone else. And that that's not a seamless process and it's not a unified process and it's not a calm process. It's not like, um, you know, everybody thinks the same. It's also a process of differentiation, of uh, dispute, of contestation, of disagreement um, around names, around terms, around what you should wear in public, about whether you should go to a club or shouldn't go to a club. And um, for me, that the misunderstanding about historical progression that uh, that like people, you know, that radic that the radical has increased over time is a reason to look back and say, um, the way we look backwards is very much informed by the present and less informed by the past than we think it is. Mm. If that makes sense. Like that it's sort of, uh, for me about, um, trying to dispel the notion that there was um, some kind of, you know, that, that queer politics moves in this way of there was unity around certain ideas and we're now cracking into them. And I think you do that through form, right? So, so do you mind speaking a little bit about the multi-channel nature of the work and how that allows for you to play with a drift or slippage of time, which I think is sort of a little bit of what you're speaking to right now. Yeah. The, so the, um, uh, the piece is a five channel, um, it's a five channel video installation. And I shot basically 13 readers and performers speaking this material aloud to each other, reading it in some ways to each other in, um, five rooms of a single house in Germantown, Philadelphia. We, um, we ended up using the uh, house of this really fantastic production manager I was working with, Sarah Kolker. And, um, and 13 people in one house. Okay, wh wh one of the things about that moment of political activity and also kind of relationships of queer political production and practice in general is that the domestic space is often also a site of production. So these newsletters were constructed in people's homes. So I was interested in um, the tension and what I see as really the blur between sort of the so-called private and the so-called public. And um, so I staged these readers in different rooms in this house and 13 people in one house becomes a little bit more than you would imagine would live in a group you know, together in that house. And so what becomes, uh, 
present in the work is that people are circulating through different spaces, but not um, in a narrative way, not in a plot way, not in a story way. There's not a reason for someone to move from the uh, dining room to the kitchen, um, but that they're kind of inhabiting the rooms uh, like through, I, I think of it through the form, actually a performance form that I think of as activity. Like activity is such a fascinating performance form for me because it's different than action and it's different than event if I'm doing an activity I could do it for a minute or I could do it for 10 hours like I could staple something for you know uh, 30 minutes or I could um, just jam it out in a half day Uh, and and activity is something where it's kind of a little bit it's both held by time duration but out of time like out of historical time did this happen in 1977? Did this happen in 1962? Did this happen in 2016? So that the so I staged the piece with these um, shots of a dining room, a kitchen, a bathroom, a bedroom, and a living room, and um, the readers come in and out of those spaces, um, but they don't interact like characters would. Um, and for me, it, it sort of allows the question of time to both like separate and come together to th- this, these old voices, so to speak, or these voices from the past and these bodies from the present, that they kind of collaborate to maybe productively take the words out of time in order to hear them uh, in a way that we don't when we say, well, you know, this is from X moment in time. Another quick question I have is one artist, I because I think I know who it is, but I'm curious. Um, name one artist who has had a lifelong impact on your life and work. Oh, that is an impossible question. That is. Okay, I won't make you answer. No, no, no. I mean, I... I love that. It's not fate. Who's? It's not who's your favorite. Right, right, artist. right, right, right. Just an artist that has had a lifelong, just one of many, that has had a lifelong impact on your life and work. Do you, who's your artist? Well, I am sitting with one of them, <laughs> but. Um, I think if I had to name one person, it would be this little Argentinian man that I met in high school, and his name was Fernando Calzadilla. And he kind of just shepherded me towards um, radical thinking. He just shepherded me towards like, a like extreme critical self-awareness at a very early age, at a time when I was coming into my own body, which I think is why it feels or it felt so profound because I was coming into my body while this person was like, your body is an archive, you know? Right, right. Um, So yeah, Fernando Calzadilla, he currently resides in Spain. That's so nice. Yeah. That's so nice. I think what's so great about the question that is, 
maybe related to what you're talking about is this thing of like when something impacts on us, it stays like mm. and yet we change. Yes. So like this impact stays, but we sort of move forward. So the thing that's so hard about the question is I keep registering like all of these, you know, moments of impact. Uh, and sometimes they're um, like sideways, like, you know, on, on the side or on the, on the sly. I mean, in some ways, I guess I, I can say that this is a funny, like, um, picture, but when I moved to New York in 1991, um, a really good friend of mine told me to go see Yvonne Rayner's lives of performers. And what that meant, which, you know, that didn't mean like go to your computer and Google it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it meant I went to the New York Public Library and I requested the film and they put it on a Steenbeck, like, which is a film editing flatbed where the reel over here goes through a bunch of, you know, things <laughs> and comes out that way and is caught up. And then there's this tiny little viewing screen and so I had a set of headphones in the library wow. watching this film from 1972 that totally altered my, yeah, my DNA probably, mm -hmm. probably altered my DNA. Um, Cause I just had no idea what I was watching really I had no idea what I was watching and it was I had no idea what this thing I was watching it on was and um and it was really uh yeah sort of from a from the point of view of um you know sort of me to the work it reshuffled everything I thought um was possible mm -hmm. And was hilarious and funny yes, and, yes, you yes. know, and surprising. And I kept being sort of like, what is, what is that? What is that that I'm hearing in the headphones? Wow. And it was a, so, a, like an experience of being alone, which is not a typical experience of seeing a work. Because um, all the other work I was seeing at the moment was with a bunch of people. So is this at the Lincoln Center Library? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. In like 91 92 and probably that experience which was I mean funny that it's in the library when what I typically talk about in terms of that moment of 91 92 was everything that was happening on the streets or in political meetings because it was the middle of the AIDS crisis and I think it was it was that's why it's hard to isolate like that experience mm -hmm. of being in the library impressed itself upon me and that work like impacted me and I'm sure I was also I mean, I, I know I was also impacted upon by all these other things. I mean, the other thing that happened probably the next year was going to hear David Wanarovich give a reading. And that was also, um, wow. yeah, like an experience I've never had. I had never had before and have never had since. The last question I want to ask is, what is the first political image that you remember? Oh, that's a good one. <laughs> I, um, I remember in, I'm pretty sure I was seven and, um, my father was reading a newspaper 
and the headline of the newspaper said, the king is dead. And I was like, who is the king? Uh, and it was Elvis. Uh, <laughs> but, but it was this moment of like, um, for some reason, stuck with me. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's half... I love that question because the question sort of, uh, yeah, it's like, well, the image actually was my father sitting there with this newspaper and these big, huge words like the, not the, because it's a headline, King is dead. And me like kind of recognizing something of importance, but totally getting the context wrong. Like I was like, kings, queens, princes, you know. As one would. As one would. And then that it was Elvis Presley. That's so good. (laughs) (laughs) That's really great. Thanks for listening to the Artelligence Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to subscribe share on social media, or leave us a rating and review. To get the latest art coverage, visit artnews.com or subscribe to our magazines, Art News and Art in America.